This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 336th episode, we have another new Sorobod. It has been too many new Sorobods. No, not enough. You can never have too many. I think after this Sorobod, I'm going to take a break from new Sorobods for a little while. But yeah. I also think I'm out of new Sorobods. So oh, good, at good. Least that. I was going to say, if you weren't out, maybe I could pick up where you left off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure you would. <laughs> we also have a bunch of museum news and we have an interview with Scott Johnston, who's a preparator and technician, soon to be at Harvard. He hasn't quite started yet. And we have dinosaur of the day, Chialingosaurus, or maybe Chialingosaurus. Depends on how much emphasis you want to put on that G in the middle of it. But before we get into all that, really quickly, we want to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we'd like to thank Robert, Taya, Kessler, Vikram, and Karthik. Ray, Christine, Michael Raptor, Trev, Brendan Cavanaugh, and Chris. Yeah, thank you so much for all of your support. We really appreciate all of our patrons. Fantastic. You help us keep this podcast going from week to week. And we hope you enjoy the rewards that we offer, like our community chat on the Discord and bonus content and all sorts of things. Also, I want to give a special thank you to Paleo Mike for sending us a pre-formatted list of about 60 new dinosaur museums. Oh, yeah, that was great. It saved me a ton of time. He had sent me this list a long time ago, and I couldn't get through it, and I asked him to format it, and he did, and I really appreciate it. So now our Dinosaur Museum app has 260 museums in a lot of countries, I don't even know how many, on six continents. Or seven, if you include Zealandia, <laughs> because Zealandia, I think, should be considered a continent. I wonder if there'll ever be a museum on Antarctica. That's a, a good question. I mean, hopefully not. But if global warming keeps going, I think the odds increase of that happening. Mm. But let's hope that there's never a museum on Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> it should be inhospitable for people. Or it could be a mini museum, like for the people who go to do research. Oh, I suppose. Yeah, it could just be like a corner of a scientific research station. Yeah. Like they just have like a little three-fold board that somebody made. Yeah, you know, something for the penguins <laughs> to enjoy too. That's true. Good point. <laughs> yeah. So thank you again to Paleo Mike. And thank you to all of our patrons for keeping the podcast going. But if you want to check out these dinosaur museums, inodino.com slash dinosaur hyphen museums, or just go to inodino.com and click on the museum link. I love going there and planning out fantastical road trips that I can't do right now. 
but it, but in the future, yeah. it's it's fun to do yeah. and see all the museums that are all over the world. And if you want to join our Patreon community, that's at patreon.com slash inodino. So jumping into the news, up first is our new sauropod paper. This one was published in Cretaceous Research and written by David Rubilar Rogers and others. Even though it's a new sauropod, it's not from Argentina. Oh, where's it from? It's a twist. It's from Chile, which is very close to Argentina. As you say, not too far away. Neighbors. Yes. But actually, there's like almost no dinosaurs known from Chile. This is only the third dinosaur ever found in Chile. Even though we find tons and tons in Argentina, they're almost never found in Chile. Oh, so weird. it is actually really important. Surprisingly, even though it's so close to all these other dinosaur finds, it still increases our knowledge about Mesozoic dinosaurs and sauropods. This new sauropod is from the Ornitos Formation in the Atacama region of northern Chile, and it's probably from the late Cretaceous, meaning somewhere between 100 and 66 million years ago, but it could be older because we don't have the greatest stratigraphy in this spot. But the author's best guess, they think it's between 80 and 66 million years ago based on some of like the volcanic rock that goes through it. I have a fun fact about this, but Chile, as well as California, really have sort of a similar crazy geology going on where stuff is so mixed up that it can be kind of hard to figure out what's going on. So we don't know exactly how old this is. Probably late Cretaceous, though. It is a titanosaur, so there's nothing too surprising there. A titanosaur from the late Cretaceous of South America. Mm -hmm. And it has a really cool name. Its name is Aracar Licanantai. Aracar is a Kunza word. Kunza is the language which was formerly spoken by the Atacama people in and around the Atacama Desert, which is an area mostly in northern Chile, although it does expand out into some of the surrounding countries, depending on where you want to draw the boundaries of the desert. But unfortunately, Kunza is considered to be an extinct language since the last speaker was documented at least 25 years ago. Some places say it was up to 70 years ago when everybody switched over to Spanish. Hmm. The Aracameño community is pretty small, so I think it was just hard to keep a language going with such a small group of people. And they're surrounded by Spanish speakers on all sides. So it, this kind of thing, I guess, happens more and more lately. Mm -hmm. But I was really curious how they knew enough Kunza words to name a dinosaur in if the language is extinct. It turns out there is a very limited Kunza Spanish dictionary which is available. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So the dictionary they used, and it's also the only one I could find anywhere, translates Aracar as osamenta in Spanish, which means skeleton in English. Oh. And then the species name, Licanantai, comes from two words, or sometimes they're combined into one word, Licanantai, which is translated to Aracameño in Spanish, which just means an Atacamian in English, someone from the Atacama, but specifically that ethnic group. And when you combine the genus and species name, Aracar Licanantai, it means bones of the Atacamanians in Kunza. Oh, I like that. That's how the authors phrased it. Yeah, it is a really good name. But I think maybe a better translation would be the skeletons of the Atacamanians because there's a different word for bone in Kunza, and that's mulur. So I think maybe that could be a future dinosaur name. Mm -hmm. Not sure. Also, I don't know if my pronunciation is right at all. Obviously, there are no pronunciation guides for Kunza anywhere since 
the language is not spoken anymore. There's a little bit of information about what the vowels sound like. And from what I could tell, I think it's sort of like Spanish. I presume that even if it wasn't originally, it might have gotten more of a Spanish lilt over the years. So that's basically how I'm going with it. But I really do like that skeletons of the Atacamanians as the root of the name. That's so cool. Yeah, it is. Could be a good way to name some other dinosaurs too, if you take that kind of approach with some other native languages in different places around the world, you could get some really cool dinosaur names. Yeah. And then I guess it also tells you where the dinosaur was found. Yeah, it does without just using this the place name, <laughs> which I, we had a discussion on our Discord about how I'm really hard on dinosaurs that are named place name Saurus, place name Ensis. I thought you came around a little bit. I mostly don't like it when it's place name Saurus and place name Ensis. If it's just place name Saurus, like Edmontosaurus, that's a that's a good name. You know, it's got Regalis going with it or Anectens, which spices it up a little bit. But I also really like it when they include local languages in the dinosaur names because there's only so many Latin names in the first place. And it just it gives the dinosaurs more of like a local feel mm -hmm. when you give them a language from that specific area in the dinosaur name. So I really like it. I would add Latin and Greek names. True. Often in the same word in a very confusing way. <laughs> <laughs> so the Arakar holotype and the only known individual anywhere in the world is two centra from the neck vertebrae, three neural arches from the back vertebrae, three centra from back vertebrae, the right humerus, the left femur, the left ischium, which is the hip bone that points back in both serischia and ornithischia. That's the one of the three bones. And a fragment of the ilium, which is the upper hip bone. And then there's a few unidentified fragments, as is often the case with it. But they're pretty sure that they're all from the same dinosaur because it was all found in an area of two square meters or about 20 square feet. Was it articulated at all? Or maybe it can't be. There's not enough pieces. It was semi sort of articulated. They talked about the spacing between some of the vertebrae and based on how they were a little bit farther apart than they would have been when it was alive. They think maybe it was exposed for a little while and was also a little bit deteriorated in some ways. So yeah, it was sort of articulated-ish. And it's also the most complete sauropod ever found in Chile or anywhere west of the Andes in South America. Wow. So that might tell you more about how few dinosaurs have been found <laughs> west of the Andes in South America than anything else because this is not the most complete thing in most places but yeah i mean having the femur and a few good vertebrae is a good place to start when you're talking about sauropods and the humerus for that matter mm -hmm. so it's it's not a bad find the femur is about 74 centimeters or two foot five inches long and about 9.8 centimeters or just under four inches wide which is bigger than our femur but it's not that big for a dinosaur, especially not for a sauropod. They think that Arakar was only about 6.3 meters or 21 feet long when it was alive. But they do think it was likely still growing and not an adult. Okay. So it wasn't a dwarf sauropod. It could have been. They, they said at one point, like, we have no idea how big the adult would have been. So hmm. maybe it topped out at 30 feet or maybe it was... 110 feet. <laughs> I have no idea. They didn't talk about the histology of the paper because as is often the case when they name the new dinosaur, they're just focused on what makes it unique and not 
the, all the little nitty gritty details. That's of, for later papers. Exactly. Gotta leave something for future work. In terms of why Arakar is a unique species, because even though it's from a country where we rarely find dinosaurs, Chile is really narrow. So geographically speaking, it's pretty close to Argentina. It could easily have been an Argentinian or even an African or some other part of Gondwana species, but it does have a unique set of features, so they think it's a unique species. There are details in the vertebrae, and one of those things is the angle of the bony projections that stick out to the sides, and those are less than 20 degrees from horizontal, so mm. it's you could think of them as like wing-like projections in a way. There's also neural spines on the back of the vertebrae that point pretty far back from vertical. So on something like Spinosaurus, you know, it's like straight vertical mm -hmm. sticking up. On Arakar, they're more than 40 degrees from vertical backwards. So they're almost like as far back as they are up. Oh, <laughs> interesting. I mean? Yeah. So it's pretty far back. Maybe like if you're looking at a dorsal fin of a shark or a whale or something and like that top line mm -hmm. where it points backwards, that is more like how the neural spines on Arakar face, which, yeah, it's pretty weird. And then there's lots of other less obvious details, like a slightly larger hole where the nervous system goes through the spinal cord and some other smaller details in the vertebrae. I think every one of the features was in the vertebrae that they said were unique. I don't remember seeing anything on the humerus or femur. Hmm. And that is often the case with these sauropods. It seems like it's all about the vertebrae and finding unique features. Yeah. They had similar structures, I guess, to make them titanosaurs or diplodocids or whatever type of sauropod. Yeah, that's very true. They did talk a lot about like the humerus looks like the group that it's in. <laughs> <laughs> that was about all they have to say about it. So Arakar was found in mudstone and they think it was likely originally a bottom of a lake. So this would have either bloated and floated to a spot or I guess maybe the water could have been low and it could have gotten stuck or you know, any maybe got washed into it, I suppose, and died, or maybe it just died from other causes and ended up getting pushed into the lake one way or another and then buried. But the authors do think that the bones were probably exposed for a little while before burial, like I said, with how the vertebrae were placed, and also that a lot of the smaller bones are missing. So they gave an example of small fish carrying away bits and pieces, <laughs> and just the big pieces were sort of left, like the axial skeleton, the femur, humerus, those are some of the biggest bones. Don't let that meal go to waste. Yeah, exactly. But they could be missing for other reasons, not necessarily fish. Could have been preservation conditions or erosion or lots of other things. It's always hard to put this puzzle together from whatever, 100 million years later. Mm -hmm. A real cold case. Yes. <laughs> so Arakar is a lithostradian, I think is how you pronounce it. I've seen it written a million times, but I don't know if I've tried to pronounce it before. It's a subgroup of titanosaurs. And in this case, that means that Arakar is a close relative of Isisaurus and Rapetosaurus, which are both from the latest Cretaceous. I wonder if that has some influence on the authors thinking that this is also probably from quite late in the Cretaceous. But Isisaurus is from India and Rapetosaurus is from Madagascar. So it gives you an idea of how spread out this group of titanosaurs were that we also have one in Chile now that's pretty much covering most of the globe at that point. Mm -hmm. Although India back then, I guess, was pretty close to Madagascar, actually. So maybe not most of the globe, just most of Gondwana. Still pretty spread out. 
Yes, for sure. That's It's not the kind of distance you'd expect one species to go, which these aren't one species. But Arakar does have a very similar humerus to femur length ratio as Rapetosaurus. Arakar is at 0.79 and Rapetosaurus is 0.80. That is very similar. Yeah, by 0.01. So maybe that means there's also some other similarities with Rapetosaurus. So we might be able to fill in some of the gaps of what we don't know about Arakar by looking at Rapetosaurus. And I should probably mention too, Arakar has some other features in common with Bravosaurus, which is from Argentina. So it's not only in common with things that are far away. There's also some closer stuff that it has similarities to. But I think the most interesting thing about it is that it is from Chile, and it's only the third titanosaur named from west of the Andes, or third sauropod, or third dinosaur. Well, not third dinosaur west of the Andes, third dinosaur in Chile. Mm. (laughs) It's a, a few different thirds. So the first sauropod was named in 2011 only. That's Atacama Titan. <laughs> you can guess where that name comes from. And that's from roughly the same time in the late Cretaceous, but it is from a different formation, so they didn't necessarily coexist, Atacama Titan and Arakar. The second named Titanosaur was named in 2020, and that's Yamanosaurus. That's from the latest Cretaceous of Ecuador. We talked about that in episode 305 pretty recently. I was going to say, it sounds familiar. Yeah, I, I thought that when I looked at it too. It's like, wait, pretty sure we talked about this. Although titanosaur bones have been found at least as far back in the 1960s, but they weren't sufficient to name a new species. And that does include Arakar, which was first found in the 1990s and just hadn't been named until 2021. Did they find more fossils or are they we're finally able to study it closely enough and see, oh, okay, there's enough differences here. I think it's more the latter because the first one, Atacama Titan, was, I think, entirely named just based on previously found fossils. So I think that's mostly the case with Arakar. They didn't talk about it in the paper, so I had to piece that together from other places. But I'm pretty sure they found most, if not all of it, in the 90s. Back in the 90s. Yep. (laughs) Like Bojack Horseman. (laughs) I mean, it it would be kind of strange since it's in such a small space. It's only 20 square feet that Mm -hmm. they would extract just a couple bones and then come back later. Seems like they'd take it all out at once. And then if you're wondering, the other dinosaur that's been found in Chile is Chilesaurus or Chilesaurus. I'm waffling on my pronunciation of this, which is the only non-titanosaur from Chile. And it is a small Jurassic herbivore. That's the main dinosaur I was thinking of. When you first brought up Chile. Yeah. (laughs) Certainly the one that comes to mind is always the one that has the country's name in it. Mm -hmm. I also thought it was kind of cool. Arakar's specimen number is SNGM1, which is the National Geology and Mining Services. So it's the first specimen? Yeah, I guess so. Because it's literally just number one. And then they did like slash one, slash two, slash three for the different bones. And that museum was founded in 1980. So I guess maybe they just didn't have any paleontological specimens until the early 90s. But I don't think they have any public exhibition space. And I don't even think they have a website at the moment because the only one I could find was on the Wayback Machine when you look at an archived version of the website. Oh. So I'm not sure what the state of this museum is these days, but the first two authors on the paper are from other Chilean institutions And six of eight of the authors on the paper 
are from Chilean institutions. So there's certainly a fair amount of paleontology expertise in Chile. So Mm -hmm. I have high hopes for the future. And we've now had three dinosaurs named in the span of the last 10 years. Yeah. So hopefully a lot more are coming soon. More sauropods, please. I would appreciate some non-sauropods. We don't have a single theropod or meat-eating anything from the area. Be nice to see. Yeah, be nice to have, (laughs) but what would be even nicer is more sauropods. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I shouldn't say meat-eating anything. There's probably like some pseudo-sukian or some other non-dinosaur meat-eater from the area. But one of the problems is that the area west of the Andes was covered in water At least a lot of it was covered in water during the Cretaceous. So like this one was found in a lake. Yeah. Kind of gives you a clue about how much land there was for dinosaurs to roam around on. But I do think the bigger problem is a lack of local paleontologists. So now that that's getting better, hopefully we get some more dinosaurs. Good. More sauropods, please. You already said that. (laughs) I heard you the first time. I would appreciate an ankylosaur. (laughs) Nobody ever fights at kylosaurs. That was just sauropods. What are you talking about? Borealopelta, Zool? You had some great... That was in one year. I had one good year. Well, there's plenty of years to go. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Moving north in Redcliffe, Alberta, Canada, a seven-year-old Austin found a notosaur tooth while he was on a weekend hike. Huh. So many people finding fossils while hiking. There's an ankylosaur, but all I get is a tooth. I'm disappointed. It's still cool. The picture is really cool of the tooth. They originally thought it was from a fish or a bird. And so he and his mom sent photos to the University of Alberta Paleontological Society. And then within an hour, they learned it was a dinosaur tooth, probably a notosaur. Wait, they thought that the tooth was from a bird? Oh, that's a good point. (laughs) That is what the article said. But that is a good point. (laughs) That's not most people's first thought when they find a fossilized tooth, that it's from a bird. But anyway, apparently it's easier to find, or it can be easier to find dinosaur teeth on a sunny day because the tooth, if the tooth preserves an enamel layer, then it has this translucent outer coating. So oh, that's catch true. Your eye. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sparkle. Mm-hmm. And in Alberta, you can't dig for fossils, so... You know, they have to be kind of on the surface, like when you're hiking and something catches your, something shiny catches your eye and you pick it up. In that case, you can keep them in your possession if you find them on the surface, but you're technically the custodian of it. So Austin gets to be the custodian of this tooth, but Alberta owns the fossil and Austin can keep the fossil with him so long as it stays in Alberta and he doesn't sell it. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I've never heard of being a custodian of a fossil before. But it must be a common thing in Alberta. Could be. Maybe for these smaller fossils, too. Sounds like a way to make sure that people are taking care of the fossils without restricting the ability to collect things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, keep you excited about them. In Las Vegas, the Natural History Museum has a new life-size Dilophosaurus exhibit that was created by paleoartist Brian Eng. Oh, yeah, we've been hearing about that. Yeah, on his Patreon. So the museum's open now, and then actually based on Brian's Patreon photos, you can see a lot of the details of the exhibit. It looks really cool. It's got much higher head crests than we're used to seeing on Dilophosaurus. Yeah. And it's really colorful. There's a lot of blues and oranges. 
There's a lot of details in the head, too. One of the posts on Patreon said that there are scientifically accurate crotch wrinkles. Oh, that's good. Yep. Oh, I think that was specifically for the cloaca. Yeah, I think so. And it sounds like this Dilophosaurus might get a name when there's the big reveal, but I didn't see too many details on that yet. And the Dilophosaurus is also going to be surrounded by smaller animals. Could be prey, could be friends, I don't know. Passersby. Is anything a friend of a much larger predator? Ooh, could be juveniles. Oh, that's true. Yeah, they might be friends, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that museum. I'm glad they're getting a new exhibit. <laughs> Some of the exhibits were getting a little long in the tooth, so it's nice to get a refresh <laughs> there. Yeah. In the UK, in Nottingham, Walton Hall Natural History Museum has a new exhibit. Well, they're going to have a new exhibit called Titus T-Rex's King. That's going to be there from July 4th of this year until August of 2022. And it says it's going to be the only T-Rex on display in the UK and most of Europe. And it's the first real T-Rex on display in England in over a century. So I guess by real T-Rex, they mean original fossils. Yeah, that is how it sounded. I wonder what there was there a century ago. If anybody knows what T-Rex was on display Mm -hmm. over 100 years ago. I want to know. Yeah, 1920s. Maybe they did like a temporary display of something that ended up in a different museum. Could be. That would be my best guess. Yeah. So in this exhibit, you learn about T-Rex and about this particular specimen, which was found in Montana and how it was found. The exhibition is over 4,000 square feet. It's in the largest room of the museum. And they've also got digital and interactive virtual media displays in addition to the T-Rex skeleton. Apparently, the Arts Council England provided the initial £250,000 funding, which is nice. And you can book tickets now. So I'm guessing this is a privately owned one that's only temporarily on display? I don't know. There's no information on that. Might be something you learn if you see Titus in person. Okay. We'll have to wait till the exhibit is open, and then maybe we can get an update. Back in the U.S., in Canyon, Texas, Panhandle Plains Historical Museum has a new exhibit called Dinosaur Discoveries, Ancient Fossils, New Ideas. It's a traveling exhibit. It was made by American Museum of Natural History, California Academy of Sciences, the Field Museum, Houston Museum of Natural Science, and North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. Holy cow, that is quite a collaboration. Yeah. So in this exhibit, they're showing how science has changed by showing the latest dinosaur research and discoveries. There's replicas of life-sized dinosaurs. In the pictures, it looks like you can see uh, protoceratops. There's a replica and a skeleton. And there's also fossils and computer simulations. So this exhibit at the Panhandle Plains Historical Museum is open from May 4th to September 6th of this year. Cool. I'm very intrigued what happens when you get all those museums working together, what they came up with. Yeah, I'm sure something good, something long-lasting that will probably travel to multiple places. Yeah, maybe if it gets a little closer, we'll see it. (laughs) In non-museum news, in Condon, Montana, a Sinclair dinosaur was recently stolen from in front of the Mission Mountains Mercantile. I feel like we've heard about this multiple times. It's been posted a lot on social media. There's surveillance video that shows two people taking Condi, the dinosaur, away, as the dinosaur is known. And the dinosaur, I guess, was there because in 2016, a fire had destroyed the store. 
And then when the store reopened in 2018, they got the dinosaur from Sinclair. And at the time, they had a contest for local kids to name the dinosaur, and they came up with Condi. So now they're looking for any information about the dinosaur. That's a bummer. I feel like we used to have a lot of stories about dinosaurs getting stolen, and then there was a lull Mm -hmm. while everybody was on lockdown, and now I guess... It's back. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Don't steal dinosaurs. (laughs) Leave them alone. This next item is pretty fun. So this was in Perth, Australia. There's a family that spent their time that they had to quarantine by building what they called a bagasaurus. So it was Carly, Sam, and their three-year-old Florence. They moved from British Columbia to Australia, and they had to do this 14-day quarantine in their hotel room. They couldn't leave the room. So to keep the three-year-old occupied, they made this really big dinosaur with takeout bags and containers and disposable cutlery and ironing board and other items. Now, this bagasaurus is five feet or one and a half meters tall. It's pretty big. And to me, it looked like a paper mache feathered sauropod. Oh, I just looked up a picture. Yeah, so it's paper bags, mostly not plastic bags. I was trying to figure out how the structure would work. Yeah. <laughs> with a bunch of plastic bags combined. And this is also has claws, but I couldn't see the claws too well in the picture. Yeah, from the picture, you mostly just see the neck, which looks sort of big birdie, like big birdie combined with a dragon. Yeah. It's cool, though. They have a time-lapse video of them making the dinosaur. And then apparently they were also growing wheatgrass. So the three-year-old also tries to feed the dinosaur wheatgrass because, you know, it's an herbivore. (laughs) (laughs) And the family's plan is to recycle the dinosaur, but they're going to keep the head. Nice. Yeah, pretty creative. Not a bad way to spend a 14-day quarantine. Yeah. Yeah, you have to keep the kids occupied somehow. (laughs) This is one thing I've learned from observing parents deal with rambunctious kids. So this next item, thank you to our listener who told us about it. It's about a man named Oscar who's selling dinosaur and other prehistoric animal sculptures. This is in Sweden. And there's six sculptures. There's a T-Rex, a Protoceratops, Dimetrodon. Then there's a crocodile. And then it says there's a yellow dinosaur, but there was no picture of a yellow dinosaur. The description says it's a yellow dinosaur that's eating, and it's about 1.1 meters high and 2 meters long. And these dinosaurs... Well, these sculptures are filled with plastic foam. The T-Rex picture shows it breathing fire, but the flamethrower requires a permit and is apparently not included in the sale. The flamethrower isn't included? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, if it's going to be a T-Rex, you don't need the flamethrower anyway. It's true. (laughs) Depends how accurate you want your T-Rex statue to be. I mean, no matter what, it's not going to be that accurate. These dinosaur sculptures are, they remind me of maybe 40s era They're made in the 70s. I think they were already outdated by the 70s. They're very kangaroo posture. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, they're made in the 70s. Then they became, at some point in the 70s, part of this dinosaur land called Valley of Terror. And then in the 80s, they were moved to a forest area. This is all in Sweden. Then in the 90s, after Jurassic Park came out, they moved to Ostorp in Skåne and a place called Dino Land. And then in 2016, Oscar had read about Dinoland, which was at that point an abandoned dinosaur park. And the owner said he could have the sculptures if he just picked them up. It's not easy to do. These are pretty big, but he did it. And the last few years, they've been in his family garden and his kids played with them. But now his kids are grown. So he's hoping that somebody near him, which is near Yotane, will buy them so that Oscar can visit from time to time. And it's probably easier to move these sculptures, too, if they stay local. 
Yeah, I think we did the conversion on the asking price and it was somewhere around like $2,000 or something. US, yeah. Which if you like the 70s slash 40s <laughs> style of dinosaur sculpture, I guess it's not a bad deal. It's if you have a lot of space too. Yeah. And you don't mind the upkeep of outdoor sculptures. Our last bit of news is about the Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous Season 3 trailer that went out recently. <laughs> it's crazy how fast they crank these out. I know. I was going to say, like, maybe there's spoilers in this, but can you have spoilers with a trailer? I don't really think so. Okay. No. So a lot of this trailer is around the kids trying to escape the island and keep away from E750, which is that new dinosaur we don't know too much about yet. So in the trailer, Henry Wu says the E750 project is, quote, extremely aggressive. And I think it's meant to be even more aggressive than Indoraptor. Or maybe it is the Indoraptor since this takes place before Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Oh, that's a good point. But I don't think it is Indoraptor. I guess we'll find out. But they showed this Indoraptor-like scene where you see the silhouette of the new dinosaur. And maybe it's hunting them. And that was where I got the best idea of what it might look like. Actually, that's how I know it's not Indoraptor. It's got this big crest on its snout over the jaw, so it looks uh, somewhat Dilophosaurus-like, but it's a little shorter. Interesting. The crest is a little shorter. Maybe it's Monolophosaurus. Oh, could be. Or something mixed with Monolophosaurus. Yeah, it's probably, they don't do real dinosaurs anymore. It's always, look, we made this new crazy thing. Well, there's always Rexy. <laughs> that's true. So, the trailer to me, it was starting to feel more like Jurassic Park and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom with all this suspense, these suspenseful scenes. Season three is going to be more intense now that the audience that grew up with season one has grown up by eight months. Could <laughs> be. long it's been since the first season came out. Or they're just ramping it up before the movie comes out next year. So season three comes out May 21st. It's very soon. It is. It's probably going to be our next watch party. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dino dig. You'll get all of the details. 
Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our interview with Scott Johnston. But as a quick reminder, if you're a patron, we have an extended version of this interview that you can snag from your premium content feed. We're joined this week by Scott Johnston, who is a paleontologist, scientific advisor for TRX dinosaurs, and will very soon be a vertebrate fossil preparator and technician at the Harvard Museum of Comparative Zoology. But in the past, he's been a preparator for a while because he's also done preparation for the AMNH, also known as the American Museum of Natural History, and at the University of Michigan Museum of Paleontology. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you have quite a bit of experience when it comes to fossil preparation, which is why we were so excited to talk to you. Well, one of the reasons. Yes. I've been I've been doing fossil prep since I was like 14. I started volunteering at the University of Michigan Museum of Paleontology's Vertebrate Fossil Prep Lab under the tutelage of Dr. Bill Sanders. And yeah, it's I've been doing it ever since. I actually I found out that uh, a couple of years ago that my dad was convinced that I would last like two weeks. <laughs> he's like, he's going to find out it isn't all Jurassic Park, Indiana Jones, not all this stuff is crazy interesting and like going out in the field and all that crazy stuff. And it's in fact can be very tedious and very time consuming from time to time. And jokes on you, dad, it's been <laughs> like almost 13 years. So, or, oh wait, almost 14 years, something like that. I'm, I'm losing. No. Yeah. 13 years. So it's like half your life then. Pretty much. Wow. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes, it is pretty much. I've, Pretty much dedicated half my life at this point to fossil prep. So did your dad get you into it? He did, yes. He's since retired, but he was working at the University of Michigan. He was the director of, of facilities and operations for the College of Literature, Science, and the Arts at the University of Michigan. And being facilities and operations, he knew like all the labs, all the people who worked in them, all the professors and stuff like that and me being the like dorky dinosaur obsessed kid that i was <laughs> he approached bill sanders at one point and was like hey my son likes all this stuff i know you guys have volunteers uh have student volunteers like he's pretty free during the summers would he be okay to come in and try out or something and bill said sure and yeah so my, my dad was the one who really got me into it Nice. nice. That's really cool. What was your first 14-year-old assignment? Oh, it was a Desmatosuchus vertebrae. And it was, I, I still remember what it looks like. Oh, man, I feel so bad for this poor vertebrae. I didn't know what I was doing at the time. I must have screwed it up terribly. I had no idea why Bill kept me on. But it was, yeah, it was this Desmatosuchus vertebrae. And it was covered in this, like, 
bright, brilliant, red, orange sediment. And I was just learning how to use an air scribe. And I, yeah, I must, I must have screwed it up, but apparently I did a good enough job. And that was also the first specimen that I ever broke because <laughs> uh, it was just kind of loose at this one point and I was working on it. I put a little bit too much pressure and I believe it was one of the transverse processes just snapped right off. Mm. They got glue for that. <laughs> That's what Bill said. I, I, I thought I thought he was going to fire me. I thought it was just like, oh, man, I've just started. It's been like three weeks and I'm going to be kicked out into the streets and never going to be working in paleontology. And I went into Bill's office, like almost in tears, like, Bill, I, 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 I broke this fossil. He's like, Scott, that's why we have glue. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can, can you fix it? And I was like, I think, I think I can that, that do it. <laughs> he used to say that if you, if you've never broken a fossil before, then you haven't worked with fossils. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, 99% of the time they come broken and you have to glue them back together in the first place. So, Oh, absolutely <laughs> they do. Or like from my years working in it, that like there's certain fossils that just happen to break in certain ways when you're working with them. So they just do that from time to time. Yeah. So Desmodosuchus, I had to look it up just now to know what it was. It looks, is this a Triassic archosaur? Yeah, it's an Etosaur, I believe is how it's pronounced. I, I was corrected on that by Emily Keeble when I, I, I had an interview with her over with TRX Dinosaurs, and she works on them. I kept misreading it and calling them Atiosaurs, but I'm pretty sure that it's just Etosaurs. Mm, gotcha. They're weird, armored, herbivorous, like pig-snouted, crocodilian-looking things. They're they're very strange. Big horns and spikes all over their backs and sides. They're almost ankylosaur-like. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Looking at like a less armored, more lizardy ankylosaur, but it's got yeah those shoulder spines. Are very like notosaur looking. That's cool. So when you were saying about like your dad didn't think you'd do fossil preparation for the two weeks, what what is it about fossil preparation that's kept you going for the last so many years? Oh, it's hard to put my finger on exactly what it is. I, I think it's just that like I love it. I really <laughs> I, like. I know that's an incredibly unspecific answer but like it, it was just it would it's what got me into working in paleontology that i grew up loving dinosaurs and prehistoric animals and all that stuff and collected little models and went to all these different museums and stuff and i remembered going to the, my first experience with fossil prep was when i actually went to the field museum and i got to see they have their visible prep lab there when they were working on sue oh nice if memory serves mm -hmm. and i got to watch them do that and i thought it was just the coolest thing ever but when working at Michigan, I think that the thing that really made me fall in love with it, besides just like thinking, oh my gosh, I'm actually handing it, like it being my first experience handling fossils and working in paleontology, I think part of it was just we had a great lab atmosphere. Like Bill is a legend. He's a great guy. I refer to him as my second dad. Like he's like warm and loving and caring and great. And we had all these great students in there. 
We just had a, a really fantastic atmosphere and everyone became friends. Everyone liked to hang out. And so it was just fun to go to work. And I, and because it was fun to volunteer and work on this stuff, I just eventually started getting better and better and better at it. And once I started getting even better, then it was like a vicious cycle of I'm enjoying it because I'm doing well. And mm-hmm. then be, because I'm enjoying it, I'm doing better. And then it's it was just self-feedback of going on and on and on and now it's my career. Nice. So nice. that's that's probably what happened. It sounds like from the very outset you were using all the same tools that you're probably using now because you said you were using an AirScribe on that like first mm-hmm. ever vertebra. Have, or have things changed? Have you graduated to more complicated stuff? Uh, if anything, I've just learned more about AirScribes and the different tools. I mean, I'm always learning about different tools. There's tons of different tools that you can use in fossil prep and i still haven't used like all of the techniques and all of the things that go into fossil preparation there are new tools that keep coming out or new techniques one of actually my fellow university of michigan lab rats joe gronke he is a real like groundbreaking pioneer at what he calls uh, no-touch fossil prep using entirely digital techniques. Mm. And it is fascinating what he's able to do. He can CT scan uh, a specimen in situ, in the matrix, Mm -hmm. and he can use uh, 3D modeling software to essentially remove the specimen from the matrix without ever putting a tool to it. Yeah. Are there different... So like... The AirScribe I'm used to seeing is basically, it looks more or less like a dental pick, like an electronic mm-hmm. dental pick with like a, a little point sticking out of it. Are there different versions that have like different attachments on the end or is it always that same point? There are, there are. I know that the, the, the company that's kind of the, the gold standard of really good AirScribes is HW. They're a German company and they make uh, a line of tools that like my favorite is the HW10 and man, I'll never go back to a paleo tool after that. I, I imagine <laughs> the one that you're used to seeing as well is like probably black with a blue lever on the side for adjusting the pressure. That's a paleo tools one. Those are Typical, the Paleo Tools Microjack number six is what I was trained on. And there it's a fine tool, but yeah, there there are other ones that like the German tools have a couple models that have chisel tips hmm. and stuff like that. But mostly I prefer the like standard like point. But yeah, there there are some other attachments to it, but generally they're pretty homogenous. So then it's all in the technique of how you remove the rock <laughs> yes. using the tool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's all it's all in the technique. It's in the size of the tool as well. There are some larger air scribes that can be used for removing more bulk material and then down to smaller and smaller and finer ones for up really close to the specimen. And sometimes you, you have to use different tools for different jobs and stuff. Like when I was at the American Museum of Natural History, I basically never got near the teeth of the mammals I was working on mm. with an air scribe because it was just slightly too much possibility for vibration and the air blowing through that if I chipped the tooth just a little bit, I couldn't react fast enough to not have that little chip go flying into my uh, little prep box. And Mm. then I'd have to spend a couple minutes digging around for this tiny little like head of a pin sized flake to be able to glue that back on. So I'll graduate down to pin vices, which are just 
like little carbide pins that are being held in like a little housing that you can hold on to that has a little bit more grip to it and just using manual just like using finger strength to just chip away so you're just scratching it with a pin yeah uh (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know that is there anything that goes smaller than that or is that like the finest detail tool that's pretty much the smallest it's pretty much the finest detail you can actually actually you can use air abrasion systems can go a little bit finer than that and they can be a bit more controlled so that's essentially uh, a sandblaster but you can use like iron powder you can use crushed walnut shells and stuff you can get really fine control on that the the key is really what magnification you're working at oh yeah because if you're the higher magnification you're working at the more that you're able to see how you're affecting the specimen and if you're not working at high enough magnification you can't tell if what you're doing is damaging the specimen or not gotcha Mm. So those are, would those be like the, the main tools? You got something to scrape away and your magnifying glass and then your hands? Yep, that's pretty much it. It's uh, you use whatever tool is best for the job, be it an air scribe, be it a, an air abrasion system, a rock saw, a high-speed grinder, a pin vise, even chemical preparation, acids, things mm. like that can absolutely be useful. And then a really, really, really good microscope and some really good hand-eye coordination oh and the biggest tool of all a whole lot of patience (laughs) (laughs) but yeah there's there's so many different challenges when it comes to fossil prep like i was working on these that were just in this incredibly hard matrix but i didn't really have to worry about the integrity of the fossil itself Mm. afterwards like it was just so hard so rigid so well supported that it was fine but then then a couple prep bays over like amy davidson was working on mongolian stuff that was in this loose sandstone and she was more worried about removing too much matrix and making the whole thing fall apart under its own weight Mm. or consolidating the matrix to make sure that it she yeah that again it didn't like collapse while she was working on that's it. a good point i always think of mongolian stuff as being like the easiest to prepare but if this if it needs a little support from the sediment i didn't even think about that aspect of it mm-hmm. sounds like oh, it cre- definitely does like creativity is also a part of the job then oh it super is and amy davidson is actually a fantastic example of that because she didn't really have a background in the sciences before she became a fossil preparator she actually had a background in art in sculpture she started volunteering at some of the institutions where her husband works because her husband jim carpenter is an entomologist and so she started volunteering in the prep labs and then just her artistic background was perfectly applied to fossil prep that it's part art it's part science it's a little bit of a whole lot of things <laughs> yeah awesome so i know in addition to preparing fossils you're also the scientific advisor for trx dinosaurs so what mm-hmm. what does that entail it's kind of funny like i guess kind of sort of on paper i do scientific advising but in a sense it's become more of an outreach and education part Mm -hmm. that like every once in a while i'll get messages and it'll be like hey i have a client that wants a dinosaur puppet and like they want some bright colors on it can you tell me what sort of colors would be plausible on a dromaeosaur and so I'll, i'll give a little bit of feedback on that but generally 
Keegan at TRX Dinosaurs is pretty just good with that on his own. Essentially, the position came up because he really liked the stuff I was doing on Instagram of my Q&As and stuff and essentially wanted me to do it with TRX Dinosaurs is mm. a bit of a outreach thing. And also to to help me out after I got laid off from my position at the American Museum of Natural History during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Yeah, Keegan is awesome. Keegan's amazing. We mm-hmm. interviewed him a while back, and he was also a sponsor for a while, too, with TRX Dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. He makes some really good puppets. Yeah. But you also share like some really good stories in these Q&As, too, like uh, the one we did. And you told us about the Bristle Mammoth Dig, which, I mean, our listeners can go to the Q&A to hear the whole thing, but maybe you can give us a taste. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's always, there's so many fun stories in paleontology. And every time you, as I'm sure you guys know, every time you talk to a paleontologist for long enough, you're going to hear a story that just makes you go, wait, what? Really? So that one was, I was in college at the time, and apparently there was a, there was a farmer in Chelsea, Michigan, that that's like a half hour, 40 minute drive away from Ann Arbor where the university is. And there was a farmer there who was putting in a tile drainage line in his wheat field and had rented a backhoe and stuff, and he hit a mammoth skull. And like shored off like the back portion of it and was like, wait a minute, that looks like a really weird rock. And then look closer. <laughs> I don't I don't think that's a rock. And then like dug around it a little bit. I think we might have some big bones here. This might be this might be something strange. And they called up the University of Michigan and Dr. Dan Fisher, who works on mammoths and mastodons, went over to take a look at it. I believe. At, yeah. At the time, he was the director of the museum. He went over to take a look at it and was like, yep, that's a mammoth. And it's a really big mammoth, in fact. Mr. Bristley said, like, oh, cool. Can you get it out of my wheat field? And Dad was like, "Mm, can you let us have it? And he was like, yeah, sure. I don't really have a need for it. And so (laughs) he donated the mammoth to Michigan. And Dan was like, yay, that's awesome. And Mr. Bristley said, can you get it out in a day? (laughs) <laughs> and he's like wait what <laughs> because it was the middle of harvest season which is why he like needed to like get things going mm-hmm. and get stuff out of there and he was like yeah i need my field this is kind of like how i make my living so i can't have you guys digging up my entire field for like days and days and days and days like can you do it in a day and Dan said, I guess. So it kind of became all hands on deck. And I actually, I wasn't there for the first day of the excavation because it was literally, from what I know, it was pretty much like who was in the museum right then went. (laughs) And the next day, they had already gotten pretty much everything out because they did essentially get the entire thing out in one day. Wow. And which was insane. There's some very <laughs> dramatic pictures. If you look up the Bristly Mammoth, like B-R-I-S-T-L-E, there's a great picture of them using that rented backhoe to lift the entire skull of the mammoth out using like tow cables and, stra- and tie down straps. Was it just in like dirt that that was even possible? mud it was in it was oh, in God. like it, yeah uh, it was in really thick clay mud hence the dramatic pictures <laughs> yeah hence intense. the dramatic pictures and yeah it, it was it was sticky it was hard to get off it like it wasn't in rock really 
but yeah that was a fantastic thing and it was the next day i had like just gotten out of the shower getting ready for class like had my poured myself a bowl of cereal and stuff and bill sanders calls me i picked it up thinking it was almost a butt dial because of how <laughs> little he ever called me you know, hey bill what's going on scott if you get your butt here in the next 10 minutes you could dig- go dig up a mammoth <laughs> <laughs> bill i'm like 20 25 minutes from the museum i said 10 minutes <laughs> and then like hang up and i was like okay then and I had apparently that day decided I wanted to look kind of nice, so I was wearing like the my nice black jeans and a uh, white polo shirt and stuff. And I was like, I don't have time to change. And I like grabbed a bunch <laughs> of snacks, threw them in my backpack, and like ran the like mile and change to the museum. Popped by my professor's office, whose class I had that day. I was it, like knocked on the door, just like, "Hi, I can't come into the class today. I'm gonna go dig, dig up a mammoth. I'll tell you about it tomorrow. Bye." <laughs> and jumped in the car and drove out to Chelsea and helped clean off all of the bones that we had sitting out from the excavation the previous day. And it was, it was a blast. I got extremely dirty. I had to throw out that nice shirt and pair of pants the, uh, <laughs> the next day because it did not come out, but it was a, it was a fantastic experience. It was so much fun, even though it was cold and muddy and dirty and, there were a lot of cows, too, so there was a lot of manure smell, which is always <laughs> fun. Then, so a couple years later, we actually got permission from Mr. Bristley to went and they had a little bit of a lull, and they had some time to, like, hey, if you guys want to come out for a while and re-excavate the site, look around a bit, then and see if you got every, anything, we can give you more than one day to do it. <laughs> so we got to go back out there, and I was actually part of that from the beginning that time that was also when we determined when we discovered that mr bristley had renamed his farm in the time that we were there uh, well in the time since we were there and it is now mammoth acres in chelsea michigan <laughs> and he had he had shirts he had it like hand embroidered on a carhartt jacket and stuff it was it was great he was just having a huge blast with it and <laughs> We got to look around to see if we found anything else, and turns out we pretty much didn't. We did a good job getting it out the first time. In one day. In one day. Like, (laughs) we missed a couple ribs, we missed, like, a couple vertebrae, but the most puzzling thing about the mammoth was that we didn't find any long bones of it, no Mm. limbs. So we are pretty sure that it was a butchery site. There were a couple large boulders in association with it too, like like almost watermelon size. That like one of them had a very pronounced edge put onto it, and one of them, when I was cleaning it off, fractured right in half. So that was probably the from shock of being used as an anvil. Hmm. It, it was really really interesting. Yeah. So it was like a half paleontology, half anthropology site. Ar- archaeology. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It was it was a really really cool locality. Yeah, that's that it is, is cool. <laughs> I guess that was those were the bones that they didn't have any use for. Like, what are you going to do with the full mammoth skull? 
<laughs> well, it, it was the it was the skull. It was most of the the axial skeleton. It was like the the skull, the vertebrae, the ribs, stuff like that. So it, it might have just been that like it was put somewhere and forgotten about. It might have had to have been abandoned, mm, or they yeah. just kind of had to carry off what they could, which happened to be the limbs. That's true. So Interesting. You don't have refrigeration too, so there's limited amount of time to choose what to eat before it goes there bad. Right. Is but one of Dan Fisher's big claims to fame is working on essentially a method that early peoples could have used for paleo refrigeration basically oh really yeah of essentially preserving mammoth and mastodon materials or like meat in general in marshes and bogs where near the bottom it's anoxic and it, it seems like a lot of the ones that we tend to find seem to be in association with these locations so he actually, he did a, it was one of the first talks I ever went to when I was like seven, eight years old of how these people would have possibly butchered these animals and put them in these bogs that would preserve them. And after you cut off like the little bit of scum and stuff on top, then the meat is still fresh underneath. And he tested this personally by like, he managed to in the local area there were like two horses that had died of natural causes Hmm. and he put one of them on the roof of the museum and (laughs) one of them in a like butchered in a local bog and then would every couple days would come back and cut steaks from them to see if like how they progressed and oh like at least as far as i know i know they're renovating the building now because it's no longer a museum building but as far as i know the the skeleton from one of those horses stayed up on that building for years (laughs) it's a taphonomy experiment afterwards (laughs) exactly exactly but he, he found out that the meat actually did stay fresh there's a really interesting display of like, hey, yeah, you, as you mentioned, we don't have refrigeration. So how do you keep an entire mammoth from being wasted? Yeah. And then you might forget about it and then you get a fossil, maybe. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Cool. I have to ask too, going back to something completely unrelated. No one Please. has ever asked us what our least favorite dinosaur is, but I'm intrigued with how you answered that. Ooh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that that is an interesting one. I would probably say that, like, at least for me personally, my least favorite dinosaurs are the ones that I find the most, like, uninteresting. Like, it's not that I have, like, a visceral hatred to any specific dinosaur, <laughs> but, like, like, some of the, like, a lot of the smaller ornithopods... I generally tend to like have a difficult time differentiating unless there's a cool feature about them, like Lealanosaura with its really long tail and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But like some of those smaller, just kind of interchangeable, smaller nithopods, I have a like tough time parsing out. Uh, or like a lot of the ornithomimids, like I find ornithomimids like in general pretty cool. But if you showed me an ornithomimus, a struthiomimus, and Gallimimus? Uh, like a gallimimus. Well, gallimimus is huge, so I might be yeah. able to identify that one. I always keep forgetting how big gallimimus is. It's not okay. <laughs> but um, like, if you put uh, like a bunch of those smaller ones like next to each other and was just like, tell me which one is which, I couldn't. I probably couldn't. They all look the same to me. But it, it's hard to say one specifically. I mean, I some of the heterodontosaurs I find a little bit upsetting to look at, like pe- like pegomastics and stuff. <laughs> like, oh, that's a 
that's a rough looking dinosaur but <laughs> and and some of the ones i have like a really like begrudging respect for of like i i really learned to appreciate over raptors while i was at the american museum of natural history mm-hmm. even though i fully acknowledge that they would be extremely extremely upsetting animals to be near in real life (laughs) they are scary because of their like large beaks and the beaks and the claws like there's a there's a citipati the i mean amnh is kind of famous for their over raptors and citipati and stuff like the the big mama citipati that they have on display there that's like laying on a nest of eggs has hand claws that are bigger than the killing claws on velociraptor (laughs) like it's it's something that like when i went to brisbane and stuff and we went to the zoo like you have a little bit of a like ooh, this is this is kind of a scary animal when you're face to face with a cassowary. Now imagine mm-hmm. that cassowary is like almost ostrich size and has blades on all of its appendages <laughs> and a beak that's like stronger than a parrot. And like, yeah, it probably would be an animal you wouldn't want to meet in a dark alley. Yeah. <laughs> especially near a nest. <laughs> exactly. Especially near a nest. And I, I also just have a little bit of childhood trauma from the, dinosaur planet discovery documentary with the mm-hmm. one that's set in mongolia following velociraptor and stuff and they have they call them oviraptor even though as i've learned that pretty much all of our oviraptors are really just citipati because we know basically nothing about oviraptor mm-hmm. and and it just made the most terrifying noises <laughs> and it scared me so much as a child so nowadays whenever i'm like see some beautiful oviraptor fossils it's just a little bit of the back of my head i just hear that like call in the back of my head and i'm like Mm-mm, no not a fan <laughs> yeah that was an interesting documentary because it was like they they turned it around where you'd think it's like velociraptor especially with the fighting dinosaurs where it's mm-hmm. like velociraptor is this antagonist and it's like going mm-hmm. after the herbivores but in that story it was like the velociraptors are more like desperate vultures wandering yeah. around trying to find a meal and the the oviraptors or oviraptorids were like mm-hmm. you know don't mess with me <laughs> yeah yeah it was especially because like yeah they totally would be because they're like so much larger than a velociraptor velociraptor's mm-hmm. tiny yeah city potty was huge yeah it was like ostrich <laughs> like emu to ostrich size and like yeah no a velociraptor is not going to mess with something that large yeah yeah that's a good point so since you're starting at the harvard museum of comparative zoology soon mm-hmm. june can you tell us more about your role and what you'll be working on there Yes. So I will be, I'll actually be their only vertebrate paleontology preparator. Really? Wow. Yeah. So I'll be, it's a shared lab space, but I guess I'm probably going to be the one who's in it the most. So I'll be kind of functionally managing how some of the stuff in the lab works because it's preparator and technician. It's actually a a pretty broad uh, position. So, I, I mean, it's going to be extremely exciting. It's because, like, at the American Museum of Natural History, I was one of three when I first started out in fossil prep. And then eventually Amy retired and I became one of two. And then after I got laid off, there's just one. So it's just down wow. to Vern Lee there at the moment. Even AMNH only has one. That's crazy. Even AMNH <laughs> only has one right now. They, they, they like having three. But I know that like the financials at the moment are kind of the big yeah prohibition on that. 
Well, for our listeners then, where is the best place if they want to go and find out more about you and your work? Yeah. So the best place to do that would be on my social media. I'm a bit more active on Instagram than I am on Twitter. And on Instagram, I'm at Mr. Dr. Professor Johnston, even though I only have one of those three titles. (laughs) And that's M-R-D-R-P-R-O-F-J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N. And on Twitter, I'm at basically the same, except they have a shorter character limit. So it's S-T-N instead of S-T-O-N. So you can find me there. And hopefully I'll actually start to do some of my Q&A stuff over on TikTok as well. So it's actually a little bit more accessible and doesn't disappear after 24 hours. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Cool. And that's at the same thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Those are some really enjoyable stories. And I I liked learning more about how fossil prep works because we really don't know that much about it. Oh, yeah. There's a lot to it. (laughs) Oh, it is an extremely unsung field of paleontology that uh, it's always the glamorous job of bringing going out in the field finding new stuff and then the research that gets done and all the papers get published on that and people get interviewed on documentaries and all that stuff and get articles in popular media about them and people kind of tend to skip over fossil prep but it's important. It's it's a it's a really cool field and I absolutely love it. I hope to be doing it for a very 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 long time. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you again so much. And we'll have to talk again after you get some stuff under your belt at Harvard so we can find out what you're doing over there, too. Absolutely. I would love to. That sounds like an absolute blast. Thanks again, Scott, for sharing about your work and telling us more about what fossil preparators do. And of course, I'm a fan of that bristly story, bristly mammoth story. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Chialingosaurus, which was a request from Jonah via our Patreon and Discord, so thanks. Chialingosaurus was a stegosaur that lived in the late Jurassic in what is now Sichuan province in China. It was found in the upper Shashimiao formation. Chialingosaurus looks like other stegosaurs. It's got that small, elongate head. It had plates on the front half of the body, you know, on the neck to the middle of the body, and then spikes on the back half, the middle of the body to the tail. And the plates and spines were thought to be in pairs, you know, forming two rows. Chialingosaurus is similar to Kentrosaurus. There were a lot of comparisons between the two in the paper that described it. Chialingosaurus was herbivorous, and it probably ate ferns and cycads, 
and it was the first stegosaur described from China, and it's one of the oldest known stegosaurs. The type species is Chialingosaurus quanai. The fossils were found in 1957 by Yawu Quan and a team from the Geological Survey of the Bureau of Petroleum of Sichuan. And then it was described in 1959 by C.C. Young, also known as Zhongjian Yang. So the genus name of Chialingosaurus means Chialing lizard. Couldn't have guessed that. <laughs> yes. It refers to one of the four main rivers in Sichuan, the Chialingqiang. Could you have guessed it was a river? No, I didn't know that. The species name, Quanai, is in honor of, according to the paper, quote, Mr. Y.W. Quan, who was responsible for this interesting discovery, end quote. So C.C. Young described Chialingosaurus as similar to Kentrosaurus and said that Chialingosaurus had a slender skeleton and slender spines compared to Stegosaurus and Kentrosaurus, and it also had relatively long front limbs. Young also said that Chialingosaurus had a short and massive humerus that looks more long-stretched than the ones in Stegosaurus and Kentrosaurus. So I guess it was short and massive, but still longer than Stegosaurus? Yeah, and Kentrosaurus. Interesting. And he also estimated Chialingosaurus to be 13 feet or 4 meters long. Well, Young thought that the holotype was an adult, and that was based on the structure and size of the vertebrae and limbs, but now the specimen is thought to be a juvenile or subadult, and the thinking is that Chialingosaurus might have just looked grass out because it wasn't fully grown. Ah, uh, so maybe it just had like awkwardly long front limbs from its young age. And it's slender and yeah. Hadn't grown into its weird proportions yet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the holotype includes a partial skeleton with six vertebrae, coracoids, both humeri, the right radius, three spines, part of the right ischium, the left femur, metatarsal, and parts of the limb bones, so no skull. And the right side of the specimen was better preserved than the left side. And then more fossils and specimens of Chilingosaurus were found later, and the second specimen found included a partial skull and lower jaws, vertebrae and limb elements, and four plates. Oh, cool. Partial skull and jaws. That's really great. Yeah, so you're able to piece together a lot of it. Shuwu Zhou thought that the two specimens were from the same individual, so they were actually the same specimen because there was no overlapping material between the two. That would be great. Yeah. And then a third or second, I guess, depending who you ask, <laughs> specimen found was a partial skeleton, no skull. And all of these specimens are now thought to be juveniles or subadults. There was a second species named in 1999, Chialingosaurus guangyuanensis, but there was no description and now it's seen as a nomum nudum. Because it wasn't officially named anywhere. Yeah. There's also some debate over the validity of Chialingosaurus quanai, but then Peter Galton in 1990 said that there was one trait that made it unique, the lesser trochanter, which is this bony protuberance where muscles attached to the upper thigh bone, is triangular with a broad base. In 2008, Susanna Maymont and others in a paper on the systematics and phylogeny of Stegosauria considered Chialingosaurus to be a nomum dubium, and that was actually based on Maidment and Wei's 2006 review of Stegosaurus from the late Jurassic in China, where they found the holotype of Chialingosaurus quanai to be a juvenile with no unique characteristics. So right, right. they had said back then, okay, it's a juvenile, but there's nothing that distinguishes it, so it's not valid. 
and then they held that up in 2008. And the 2006 review came to the conclusion that the stegosaur diversity in China was similar to Europe and North America from around the same time. They found of seven stegosaurs named from China, only three were still valid. And because there weren't as many different types of stegosaurs as previously thought, the claim that stegosaurs may have originally come from Asia, they said, quote, cannot now be upheld. So it sounds like there's still some debate, at least over Chialingosaurus. But maybe leaning towards not its own official stegosaur genus. Mm -hmm. And our fun fact is all about geology. You alluded to that earlier in the episode. Yes, which is a little bit outside of my wheelhouse because I'm only usually talking about geology, which has turned into dinosaur bones and not other types of geology. But our fun fact is that the Andes weren't around, or at least weren't nearly as tall, when dinosaurs roamed South America or Gondwana. I, I really wanted to figure this out because I was curious with these Chilean dinosaurs, how similar we would expect them to be to the Argentinian ones, mm -hmm. because we talk about these barriers and how when you separate a group of animals, they evolve differently and you can get unique characteristics, but... But they probably didn't have this barrier. Yeah, so... I, first, if you just Google, like, how old are the Andes Mountains? What you'll usually find is that they're between 6 to 10 million years old, or maybe 6 to 15 million years oh, old. Oh, that's very young. That's what most people say. Sometimes they even say as recent as 4 million years old. That's what people thought for a while. But there is a lot of different thoughts on how old the Andes Mountains are. Mm -hmm. So the peer-reviewed estimates that I've found range from 30 to 6 million years old. So that's probably where I would put it. But this is talking about basically the modern Andes Mountains. There may have been another generation of Andes Mountains or something in that place that wasn't as big or didn't have the exact same topography that predates that 30 million years ago mark, which makes things much more confusing. So <laughs> I'm pretty sure that there wasn't a huge mountain range there 66 million years ago. But some sources do talk about an uplift in the Cretaceous, which actually sort of began in the Jurassic. So geologically speaking, what happened was we started having that subduction of the Nazca plate underneath the South American plate, going along Chile and Peru and all that, essentially in the Jurassic. But it didn't really start forming the Andes Mountains right away, like it wasn't subducting like crazy and it wasn't making massive mountains right away. And they think that that might have started in the Cretaceous, some hmm. sources, but I couldn't find like a primary good peer-reviewed article describing that happening in the Cretaceous. I think it's based on samples of rock and when that rock formed and then trying to presume what, if it was a mountain at that time, I guess. It's mm -hmm. very difficult to know because you can date in a rock, but it's hard to say what the elevation of that rock was when you're dating it from. There's also been a lot of volcanism and rearrangement that has happened with the Andes over the last millions of years. It also happens in different areas of the Andes at different times. So saying like the Andes mountain chain is X number of years old. Mm -hmm. is because it's, it's different pieces or different ages. So it looked different depending on which year you're talking about. Yeah. And it's not just like one continuous thing. They formed in different places at different times. It, the Andes Mountains are actually the world's longest above water mountain chain. So it's it's a disparate group of different mountains. It's not just like one thing that all formed at once exactly the same. 
And just as a, a side fun fact, the longest mountain chain, if you remove the above water asterisk, is the Mid-Ocean Ridge. The reason it's called Mid-Ocean Ridge is because the first thing that was described was the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. But it turns out that the Mid-Atlantic Ridge connects to a whole bunch of other Mid-Ocean Ridges all over the world. And if you do the longest zigzag, it's about 65,000 kilometers or 40,000 miles long. Wow. One place described it like seams on a baseball, which I kind of <laughs> like. It doesn't really wrap all the way around like they do on a baseball, but it's similar. It's like this huge, crazy thing. And you can say it's even longer if you include some of the offshoots of it that stick out in all sorts of crazy places. So it's not that long relative to the Mid-Ocean Ridges, but for above water mountains. The Andes are enormous. So I'm not certain, but I would guess that Aracar probably wasn't separated from the Argentinian titanosaurs that were alive at the time. Another thing that I was trying to figure out during this was whether or not Chile itself was formed, like whether the continental amount of Chile that we have above water existed at all, above or below water at the time. Because whenever I talk about geology, I'm talking about what was above water and what was below water. I talk about it in the way that you see pictures of it drawn where they do like an outline of the exact borders of the United States now, mm -hmm. and then they show water covering it so that we can tell what's going on. But it turns out that that's not really how it works. The continents formed in different ways. And for example, Chile, the whole coast wasn't necessarily there back during all of the Mesozoic. So the oldest rocks in Chile are from the Pantalassa seafloor from the Paleozoic, or as I like to think about it, the one before the Mesozoic. <laughs> <laughs> so Chile, basically, at least a lot of the coast, had only recently formed when dinosaurs were roaming the earth. It was still pretty new rock. It's not just that Chile was underwater. It literally hadn't formed as rock at all, at least parts of it. Yeah, so it didn't really exist at all. Yeah. So it was like new land, you could think of it, sort of like Hawaii with the volcanic eruptions. And it's like, oh, now there's land there where there didn't used to be. Mm -hmm. Not only just not underwater, like it actually formed from the seafloor all the way up. But it's not just volcanism. It's a, it's a really complicated process with subduction and... Sometimes it's land being scraped off of the top of the Nazca plate in this case and winding up on top of the South American plate. Then sometimes it gets combined with magma or the heat itself makes it go through a metamorphic process and then it fuses to the side of the continent. It's like really crazy, the stuff that goes on. I need to talk to a geologist <laughs> so that I could understand it better. But this process is still basically going on today. The Nazca plate is still subducting under the South America plate in that same place. That's why there's tons of earthquakes in Chile. And that boundary between the Nazca plate and the South America plate forms the Peru-Chile Trench, also known as the Atacama Trench. Hmm. I see. We're coming full circle. We are. <laughs> the Atacama Trench's deepest point is a little bit over eight kilometers or five miles deep, and it's almost 6,000 kilometers or 3,700 miles long. So it's almost as long as the Andes Mountains, but it's only the 10th deepest trench, according to Marine Insight. Oh my gosh. So uh, the ocean is so terrifying. One of the scariest things to me is when I'm in a boat and I know that there's miles of ocean beneath me, freaks me out. Think of all the animals just below you. It's not about the animals. It's about thinking about descending into the water beyond the couple hundred meters that light 
makes mm. it down and then you're just in pitch black darkness without any oxygen. So that's what terrifies what me. What I'm hearing is you would hate to be in a submarine. Yes. Yes, I would. <laughs> but back to happier thoughts. <laughs> I struggled to find good evidence, good papers on Chilean geology that I could understand. But I do have a book called Dinosaurs and Other Mesozoic Reptiles of California, which has a lot of details about California and how it grew during the Mesozoic. Turns out it was actually pretty similar to how Chile grew. They actually call the type of subduction zone, which helped form California, as well as Chile, an Andean subduction zone. Because <laughs> the, it's so similar. Yeah, and the, like, the most famous one is the Andes Mountains today. It's, it's pretty obvious geologically speaking, I guess. But in a, a similar way, California grew significantly during the Mesozoic. So at the beginning of the Triassic, it was sort of like Europe in the mid-Cretaceous, where it was just like a couple islands. In fact, it was just like very few small islands in northeastern California. And a lot of the rest of California was underwater, but a lot of it didn't even exist yet. It was just the coastline was way farther in and the continent hadn't even formed moving out west. And as the author of that book puts it, California grew through a, quote, rather nightmarish <laughs> series of plate tectonic movements. So some crazy earthquakes. And just like the complexity of it, I think, is what's nightmarish. Mm. Because it was like islands would form and then they'd get smashed into the side of California and reopen up again and then recombine. And it just it made such a mess that California's geology is nuts. We have so many different layers. It's all mixed up. It's it's totally crazy. But yeah, a lot of it didn't exist at the beginning of the Mesozoic. A lot of it basically formed throughout the Mesozoic. So as different dinosaurs were around, there was more and more California here. <laughs> and that's partly why we don't have too many dinosaur skeletons. Yes. And then the other reason is, as it was forming, even though it was the continental shelf, it was still a lot of it was below water. So we have some really good marine reptiles, it turns out, in California. And some of that is because that seafloor scraping I was talking about with the Nazca plate happened here with the Pacific plate. It like scraped off some of the Pacific plate seafloor onto the top of California. Then it got combined with California in certain ways. So the geology, like I said, it's just crazy. But one final fun fact, Mesozoic California included a geologic formation in the Cretaceous, which is known as the Great Valley Sequence. Oh, excellent. <laughs> I think you put at least three fun facts in your fun fact this week. I, I was I spent a lot of time reading about geology of Chile and California. That's good though. The Great Valley. It does exist. It does. And some people call the Central Valley of California the Great Valley now. Oh, interesting. But really the Great Valley sequence is specifically talking about the rock formation that's there. So if you ever want to go to the Great Valley, we just got to drive east like 100 miles. And when we, when we hit Modesto, yeah. we've made it. <laughs> we'll pretend we see Littlefoot. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of Vino Dino. Thanks for listening. And join our community. Get in on our conversations about dinosaurs at patreon.com slash Thanks again. And until next time. Sit down.